Welcome to Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us this week for Daniel chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, with Pastor John King. Thank you everybody for coming out today. We are going to be in the book of Daniel as we continue, as we've been in. And we're going to start a brand new chapter today, chapter 5. We're going to be in verses 1 through 12. So it's good to see everyone here today. Verses 1 through 12. So as you're turning, uh, just a reminder, last week we witnessed the swift and very sudden downfall of King Nebuchadnezzar. What, what, it, what was once a prophecy, again, as we said, was, had become a, a reality for him. God's patience had finally run out and run its course, and so God acted swiftly. And uh, we remember Nebuchadnezzar, if you're looking in your Bible, you'll see in verse uh, 30, where these words of pride and accomplishment came out of the mouth. It said, is, the, is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? Then we saw that a voice from heaven fell and it said, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. This began, of course, the seven years of a very humbling experience. He was eating grass like the oxen. Uh, until he finally lifted his eyes to heaven. And in the end, Nebuchadnezzar's final testimony proves to be very inspiring. His reason and understanding was returned to him. His kingdom, his honor, his standing with the government officials was all restored to him. And his final public statement was this, verse 37. He says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven all of whose works are truth and his ways justice. And those who walk in pride, he is able to put down. Sort of a warning from the most powerful man on earth at that time as to remind you that who's really in charge of God's sovereignty is what the reminder was. And so here we are now in the, in the events of chapter 5. We're in chapter 5 and we fast forward, if, if you will, 23 years after Nebuchadnezzar's death, because that was really the end of Nebuchadnezzar. He eventually died. And so here we are in the year 539 BC. And here we have his grandson, who is referred to as, uh, uh, you know, they refer to him as uh, Nebuchadnezzar as his father, but it's actually his grandson, Belshazzar, who is now ruling the city of Babylon. And we recall that, you know, just a little quick uh, history lesson for us. Daniel and his friends were taken into exile in 605 B.C. That's when the 70 years of captivity began. And then uh, they served the mighty king, Nebuchadnezzar, who gave them new names, and he converted them over you know, to the Babylonian way of life. We remember they, they stood strong. They wouldn't uh, you know, forsake their beliefs, and they wouldn't eat their food, and they were given permission not to do that. And so Nebuchadnezzar ruled the Babylonian Empire until 562 B.C. That's a historical record. Um, by the time we get to today's events in 539, you have this Belshazzar who is serving with his father. His father, his name was uh, Nabonidus, I believe. He was now the fourth line since Nebuchadnezzar as the ruler of Babylon. But things are not going well for the empire of Babylon. Um, they're actually on the verge of being overthrown this very day that we're going to be talking about today and giving way to the Medo-Persian Empire, the second great kingdom that was prophesied by Daniel earlier in this book. 
In fact, uh, in 539, Cyrus the Persian actually conquered Babylon. Now, we're going to talk a little bit more about that next week. We're just going to cover the very beginning of this chapter. We're going to cover half today and half next week. So, if you would, let's look at our text for today. Daniel 5, verse 1 through 12. It says, Belshazzar, the king, made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence of the thousand. And while he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in which had been in Jerusalem, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple at the house of God which had been in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine. They were drinking a lot of wine, by the way. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone. Sad. In the same hour, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster wall of the king's palace. And the king saw part of the hand that wrote. And then the king's countenance changed, and his thoughts troubled him. So that the joints of his hips were loosened and his knees knocked against each other. Think of the uh, cartoon. And then he cried aloud to bring in the astrologers and Chaldeans and the soothsayers. And the king spoke, saying to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and tells me the interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck. And he shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Now all the king's wise men came, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king its interpretation. Then Belshazzar was greatly troubled, his countenance was changed, and his lords were astonished. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came to the banquet hall. The queen spoke, saying, O king, live forever, but do not let your thoughts trouble you, nor let your countenance change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy God. And in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, the astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers. Insomuch as an excellent spirit, knowledge, understanding, interpreting dreams, solving riddles, and explaining enigmas were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will give you the interpretation. Well, Heavenly Father, you certainly had set the stage for that historic event to take place on that fateful day. And Lord, you're not uh, surprised by any world events, not, not the ones that happened then. In fact, those were by your hand. And we've learned that leaders and countries and nations rise and nations fall throughout history. And they will continue until you come back, Lord Jesus. Until you come back and rule this earth with a rod of iron. But Father, you've given us this look back at history for a purpose and a reason. There are many principles from this writing and this great story that we can glean from your word. And so Lord, I pray that we're able to do that today. That it will make a difference in our lives. In the lives of those around us, Lord God. That we would be a witness for you, as always, to point the way to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So go, go before us now, as always. Speak to our hearts. 
We pray this now in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. So here we are. We're having a big party in Babylon. That's not, you know, that sort of makes sense when you see how the Babylon is looked upon. Uh, we, we start out with the first four verses. Uh, Eat, drink, and be what? Be, be what? Because, oh, Mary. Okay. Well, you know, he's not going to be very merry here in a little bit, as we read. Well, they were eating and they were certainly drinking, but he wasn't very merry. Notice it's Belshazzar the king, uh, verse 1. This is another name similar to Daniel's name, by the way. It's a Chaldean name, and it means Bel, their, their false god, Bel, one of their many, protect the king. As we said earlier, history records him as the son of Nabonidus, who was actually the Babylonian ruler at this time in history. So he was not really the king. He was mainly king over, or vice-regent, or viceroy, if you will, over the actual city of Babylon. This young prince had control over this great, magnificent, magnificent city. Um, now it's most likely, writes David Guzik, it's most likely that at the time of this writing, the time of Daniel 5, Nabonidus had gone out to fight the Medo-Persian army, and he actually may have already been captured. Uh, those armies now surrounded Babylon. So here they're having this great party, this great feast, while their city is surrounded by this Medo-Persian army. And the, the army was, of course, looking for a way into this stronghold, into this city, very strongly defended. So with all this in the background, we understand that he made a great feast for a thousand of his lords. It was a great banquet. It would have included, uh, which is not normal, by the way, at this time, all the wives and then concubines. What a, what a mix. I mean, come on that were have been over probably 2,000 people in attendance. And we have archaeological discoveries all through um, uh, uh, this area now, uh, you know, which was not once known as Babylon, that proved that they had these great halls. They could hold you know, 10 or 20,000 people. They could, they could hold, a, you know, they were like a, a massive uh, building projects that went on in the ancient world. So they could certainly hold several thousand people. And notice that they drank wine in the presence of the thousand. So despite the apparent siege of the city, this young king must have felt pretty secure. You know, he must have felt like, hey, look, uh, we can still have this party. We don't have to cancel it. We're, however long they may have been planning it, you know, just by the, the mere fact that there's an army surrounding our city doesn't really matter because we're secure. And why would he say that? Um, many writers point out the fact historically this great city had uh, great fortifications. The outer walls were 17 miles long. You know, this is a pretty big city. The walls were 22 feet thick. So you could have, you know, one guy said you could have multiple chariot races on top of the wall. Um, and they were 90 feet high. And then the outer walls also had guard towers, which were another 100 feet high. And there were over 100 towers surrounding the city. The city gates themselves were made from bronze. And of course, there was a system of inner and outer walls and moats that made the city very secure. Plus, they had the river going through it. So they had plenty of drinking water. And they actually had enough food to last this city 20 years. So, you know, why not have a party? <laughs> why not? I mean, you know, why not go ahead and celebrate? Maybe it'll raise morale. But as will be seen in this very night, this great Babylonian empire would fall to the Persians on October 12th, 539 B.C. But here we are, 
Verse 2, while he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple, which had been in Jerusalem. So he's explaining. And for us, we're going we're to learn a little bit about those, uh, those silver and gold vessels and a little bit of background on those as well. Now, they keep saying he tasted the wine. Clearly, this indicates, and most, most commentators agree, that this was, he was basically a, a drunk, a drunken fool by this time. And many of them had joined in that. And notice again, we say his father, Nebuchadnezzar. Keep in mind that father, which is used five times in this passage, in that day, it was often used to refer to the male ancestors, regardless of the generation. So instead of calling him your great-grandfather, your great-great-grandfather, you might refer to him as a father figure or father. And then we had these gold and silver vessels which his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple. Daniel said this earlier in Daniel chapter 1, that Nebuchadnezzar, uh, verses 1 and uh, 2 of chapter 1 in Daniel, says he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. So he, he said that, but that's actually recorded in 2 Chronicles 36.18. 2 Chronicles 36.18, it says, And all the articles of the house of God, great and small, the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his leaders, and all these he took to Babylon. So they, they, they robbed the, the temple. And then it says that the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines might freely drink from them. So you consider this mixed crowd. The wine is flowing freely. And then the foolish thought of this young prince to put uh, on public display sort of their so-called superiority over those who had, they had exiled, over the Jews, by drinking their wine from these very sacred vessels. Sacred vessels. And you might think somebody needs to do something about this arrogant young prince. And of course, you remember reading, we read the handwriting on the wall. God's going to take a, a very direct interest in this. But how do we know that these vessels were sacred? I mean, how can you claim that they're sacred? Well, first of all, because it was taken from God's house. And all of the temple and the early the, uh, temple that Solomon built was under the direction of God. It was, it, was, uh, it was God's place where he would go from the tabernacle to the temple. On Wednesday nights, we're studying that right now. We're gonna, if you're in the book of Exodus, we're in the second half. If you're interested in the, the, the whole teaching on the, the tabernacle, which is most of the book of Exodus, uh, I'd invite you to come out on Wednesday night to learn more about that. So these, these, uh, these vessels were from the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, the temple of Solomon was built, remember quickly, the temple of Solomon was built 400 years prior to this event in uh, 957 B.C. 957 B.C. And it was to be a house of rest for the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. 1 Chronicles 28. So this was a place where they were going to finally bring the Ark of the Covenant and place it into the temple in the Holy of Holies. And you may recall that King David wanted to build the temple, but God informed him that his son Solomon would actually be the one to build the temple. In 1 Chronicles 28, 3 and 6, we have, uh, God said to me, you shall not build a house for my name because you have been a man of war and have shed blood. Now he said to me, it is your son Solomon who shall build my house and my courts, for I have chosen him to be my son and I will be his father. 
King David gave all the plans and materials to the, build the temple and to fabricate all of its furnishings to Solomon. Uh, these plans were given to King David by the Holy Spirit. So when we read the Bible, when you study about how that the temple was built, again, it was at the direction uh, by the prompting of the Holy Spirit. And the plans that were actually made by David, even though he didn't get to build the house, were given to his son Solomon. And that included all the sacred vessels, all these you know, dishes, if you will, the cups and the bowls and everything else that they use in their Levite uh, priests use in their temple worship to God. Okay, the same God who created the universe, the same God who sent his son Jesus to die on the cross that we might have eternal life, the same God who had those things made, these pagan uh, people, this, this uh, young man decided he's going to just drink wine and get drunk from the goblets uh, that they were taken from the temple. Verse 3, then they brought the gold vessels and had them taken from the temple of the house of God, which had been in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines drank from them. Uh, historians and biblical scholars will tell you that this is not normally the case. Normally women would not be present at these great feasts and then publicly. But he's like, you know, he's going to just throw everything out there, get everybody out there. And you can see that if you study the book of Esther, you know, the story of Queen Vashti, who ended up being banished by the king. And the reason was she did, he wanted her to come out in public, and she didn't want to go out in public. She, she didn't want to do that, and so she disobeyed. But that's in Esther uh, chapter 1, verses 9 through 12. And so they drank wine, and notice in verse 4, they drank, there's, yeah, there's the scripture from that part. Um, moving on, we're, uh, they drank wine, verse 4, and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone. So here they are, this huge crowd of people, uh, city is surrounded, about to be overrun. The king of the city, the prince, they're getting drunk. And what are they doing? They're raising a toast to these false gods, gods of gold and silver, bronze. and you know, they, um, People who don't have uh, no God, especially in the ancient cultures, but we, we have our modern versions of this, the things we worship. And so they would just drink a toast and continue to drink. So obviously this... This great feast had become sort of like a drunken orgy, if you will. And he actually thought that, you know, he could take God on. I mean, you know, you see people, and this is a biblical example of him thinking, you know, he can really challenge God and, and, and to God's face to do something. And we know we live in the age of grace. Many of us, we challenge God many times over and over, perhaps before we came to know the Lord. I remember thinking that if I set foot in a church, and you know, I, I had this notion that God was only like in church. <laughs> and I had this notion that if I set foot in church, I was going to be struck by lightning. You've heard that. Because I knew I was against God. I knew my life was coming against God. And so here he is. Uh, and, you know, we, we see it all the time. If there was a recent video on, uh, living, on YouTube, livingwaters.com, uh, Ray Comfort's ministry, and there was a... a um, a famous, uh, today famous uh, um, woman, I forget her name. Uh, in any event, she's a, she's a comedian. And she, she does comedy. And she, it shows on the video what happened to her recently. You may have saw this in the news. Uh, she was up there and she's talking about how, you know, her, her whole storyline. She's getting her comic routine going in front of a live audience. And she's making these bizarre statements about, you know, anyway, 
Uh, ben, I've traveled, you know, I've, I've got double vaxxed and boosted and got the flu shot and I've had my shingle shot, you know, saying all this silly stuff just to kind of rile, rile people up. And, uh, and she goes, and I've been to Mexico twice, and then she kind of says, so I think Jesus has special favor on me. And then you see it in the video, she starts to wobble and she literally falls down and cracks her head on the, on the platform, gives herself a concussion. I mean, just, you could say, well, you know, that's coincidence. Yeah, I, I agree. It could be very well. Uh, but she was on a talk show the very next day bragging about it, uh, having survived it. So, you know, if you think you can take God on and you want to use God, you want to blaspheme God, uh, go ahead. Have, have at it. Now, uh, Belshazzar, Belshazzar had put together an indulgent party scene, if you will. He was probably trying to boost morale among his nobles. But he was obviously so influenced by his culture, keep in mind, so influenced by his culture, that it sort of openly manifested itself. Uh, we know 1 John 2.16, it says, For all of life that is in the world, okay, that's our culture, the world. For all of life that is in the world, which is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. You guys have heard that before. We know it. It's a, it's a battle for us. It's a battle for you and I, because it's coming at us uh, from all directions. And so I just want to just, just, you know, respectfully, I would ask you, brothers and sisters, how are you living? How are you living your life? And are you committed? Hear me now. I'm, I'm saying this with grace. We've, we've talked about this a little bit this morning. But are you committed to taking responsibility for your own spiritual life? I'm just asking you, you know, this is a question for me as well. Are we going to be committed to take responsibility for our own spiritual life? Or do we think that, you know, maybe we can just, you know, come once a week and the only time we'll ever read the Bible, the only time we'll hear the Bible or open our Bibles uh, is on a Sunday. I mean, is, is that the case for us? You know, I, I pray that it's not. Because when, when we're not willing to take responsibility for our spiritual growth, and we talked about grace this morning, you know, we're never going to be perfect at this. But we need to be serious about it in our time. So the question is, is how are we living? Now, not only was Belshazzar living unrestricted and tolerant in this party scene, but he was also displaying a very willful ignorance of the current danger by throwing an extravagant party. <laughs> The city was surrounded by an army, folks. His father was probably already dead or having taken captive. And so, you know, for us as Christians, you know, we know the, the battle, it rages around us. We know that the battle for our soul, if we're saved, has been won. But we also know that we're called to walk in wisdom. The ladies are going through the book of Ephesians right now. And I would remind you at Ephesians 5, verses 15 and 16, he says, Paul says, Ephesians 5, verses 15 and 16. Paul says, see that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. Do we have, do we have that scripture? Ephesians 5, verses 15 and 16? No. Uh, redeeming the time because the days are evil. There it is. So Ephesians 5. You know, it's so important for us to walk with wisdom. To walk mindful of the world that we're living in. Also, we couldn't help but notice the prevalence of the wine at the banquet. Now, you might think, okay, Pastor John, now's your time to rail on alcohol use. Uh, and and I, I'm not going to do that. 
Because, you know, the Bible's very clear about it. It says it's a sin to get drunk, but it's not a sin to drink alcohol. I personally don't drink, but that's got nothing to do with it. So you guys know that, and so take it for what it is. But was the king drunk when he decided to order that the sacred vessels be taken out so they could partake and offer multiple toasts to false god? Yes, he sure was. And his disrespect toward God, the God of the Jews, went against his grandfather's earlier decree. You remember earlier on in Daniel chapter 3, verse 29, Daniel 3, 29, he says, Therefore I make a decree that any people, nation, or language which speaks anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be, what, cut into pieces. I mean, that was the kind of the standard way of humiliating and killing somebody, cutting them into pieces and having their house made into an ash heap, destroying their whole family. Because there is no other God who can deliver like this. That was Nebuchadnezzar's instruction. That was his decree to the nation. And so, again, folks, we need to remember this uh, in our world. We need to remember Paul's instruction, uh, once again, back to the church at Ephesus, Ephesus 5, 17, and 21. It says, you see it for yourself, Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand the will of the, of the Lord. And do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And it goes on to say, you know, speaking to one another in love and submitting to one another in the fear of the Lord. So again, these are, these are just biblical principles. We see somebody uh, doing these things. God brings it forth. He brings forth this historical record. There's always going to be a biblical principle for us, even though it's an Old Testament story. Warren Wiersbe wrote this. He said, both the men and the women at the feast impudently used these valuable consecrated vessels like common drinking cups. And while they were drinking, they praised the false gods of Babylon. After all, the gods of Babylon had defeated the gods of the Hebrews, or so they thought. So what was there to fear? Belshazzar and his guests could not have behaved more blasphemously. But people can defy the will of God and blaspheme his name only so long. Then the hand of the Lord begins to move. And you remember that lady we just talked about, you know, standing there on her platform thinking that everything was fine, trying to make everybody laugh. And all of a sudden, she wobbles and boom, falls out after, you know, invoking God's name. Strange coincidence, I would say. Notice here now we move over to the handwriting on the wall, the famous handwriting on the wall. How many stories, how many cartoons, how many books, how many things have been written about this incident? Verse 5, in the same hour, while they're getting drunk and they're doing these things, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall in the king's palace. Perfect location. If you're going to write something on a wall and you want everybody to see it, is to put it up behind a lampstand, okay? It's well lit now. It's perfectly, it's not going to miss anybody's view. And of course, the king saw the part of the hand that wrote this hand that could write on this hard plaster. Now, they would have been used to these kind of things. Uh, you know, this, these great walls and temples of Babylon, all the bricks were, they had things written on them, usually about the, the kings and the deities. And so here's this hand comes out of nowhere and writes this writing, which, by the way, we're not going to go to that today. We're going to catch that next week. So sorry, I, I mean, it's, this is a two-part ser sermon. So, it's Super Bowl Sunday after all. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> what did I just say? So you guys know. 
It's perfectly appropriate for what we're talking about. Exodus 18, though, we, you know, when you talk about the hand of God, you know, as a figure of speech, uh, it is used throughout the Bible. Exodus 8, 19, it says, Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God, you know, when he, after the plague of the lice. And the, the Egyptians and magicians were like, this is, this is from God. This is the finger of God coming for judgment upon you. But instead, Pharaoh's heart grows hard, and he did not heed them, just as the Lord had said he would. Also, uh, we see it in Exodus 31, 18. And, and when he had made an end of speaking and him on my, uh, with him on Mount Sinai, God, he gave Moses two tablets of the testimony, the Ten Commandments, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. So this is, this is something you see in the Old Testament. And so having seen this, look at verse 6. It says, then the king's countenance change. Now, the change in countenance, what it means is whatever brightness he may have had, whatever expression he had on his face from you know, the cheeriness of the wine had now gone very dull. It had turned pale. His face turned pale. Uh, his countenance changed, and his thoughts troubled him. So whatever you know, goofy thoughts he had in his mind, how he was trying to put out aside the fact of the current situation in the world, uh, whatever was happening, his thoughts now became alarming and dismaying. And his joints of his hips were loosened. Uh, one, one translation, the joints of his hips were loosened. The vertebrae of his back gave way. you know, uh, And his knees knocked against each other. So we said, you know, even to this day, the image of knees knocking together on cartoons and media is commonly understood as an idiom for describing someone so terrified that their body signals fear or nervousness. He's shaken in his boots, if you will. Daniel 5, 6 uh, in the NIV reads it this way. It says, his face turned pale and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. No doubt that this was a very embarrassing and humiliating thing. In front of all these witnesses, you know, you got this great hall filled uh, to be so out of control all of a sudden in front of his guests. In verse 7, it says, then, what does the king do? He cries aloud, you know, bring me the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers. It's a familiar reaction. We saw it in King. His grandfather did it all the time. Uh, one writer put it this way, when you're seeking help from the devil, it's a waste of time when God becomes your enemy. You're not going too far. And the same writer, uh, Matthew Poole, he said, men naturally leave God to their refuges of lies, and God gives them up to strong delusions to believe their lies. And so he offers a reward. He says, whoever needs this, reads this writing and tells me its interpretation. Uh, earlier on, we see you know, Nebuchadnezzar was offering uh, a reward to those who could interpret his dreams. Well, here we have a language interpretation. They were called to decipher these strange writings. And, and here's what you're going to get. If you can do that, I'm going to clothe you with purple. I'm going to give you a chain of gold around your neck, and you shall have a third ruler. And I mean, this is like winning the lottery beyond what you could believe, okay? All the stuff you could think of, you know, this purple is a color of royalty, the gold is a, a color of authority. And notice he says, and you shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. So that tells us right there that he was not the actual king, because he couldn't offer the second ruler position, because he was the second guy in charge. 
So uh, again, Warren Wiersbe writes this. He says, God had turned the banquet hall into a courtroom and the king was about to be declared guilty. If the king couldn't control the moving fingers, at least he could try to understand the message. And so he called for his wise men and commanded them to explain the meaning of the message on the wall. He offered royal honors and gifts to the one who explained the message. He would wear a royal robe and a golden chain, both of which denoted authority, and he would become the third ruler under his father and himself. Of course, in verse 8, it says, now all the king's wise men came, but they could not read the writing on the air. They couldn't understand the inscription. Or they couldn't make known to the king its interpretation. Uh, you know, as we've been reading through Daniel, you, you'll notice that these wise men, uh, when it comes to these kind of things, they, they have a pretty miserable track record. Their success rate is not good at all. There's a reason for that. Now, of course, uh, why couldn't they read the writing? Some scholars believe that this, these mysterious inscriptions, which we're going to name out next week, were of Samaritan and Hebrew writing, which was a type of uh, early Hebrew that was used prior to the captivity. Remember, their, bit, their nation is going to be destroyed. You know, the temple's uh, being sacked and destroyed, and their livelihood and their, and their, their, uh, their language is going to be altered. And so these wise men who were Babylonians couldn't read this writing. But those who were taken out of exile, of course, could be able to read the writing. Verse 9, it says, Then King Belshazzar was greatly troubled. His countenance was changed and his lords were astonished. Now, if things weren't bad enough, okay, the city's surrounded. You know, his head is spinning from all this wine. He sees a handwriting on the wall. He doesn't know what it means. His lords can't explain him. I mean, he is losing his mind here. It says he's, the king was greatly troubled. Now it's even worse. A supernatural hand written in a language that nobody can read, and the party was now half full of stunned and silent attendees. He's embarrassed. He can't even control his body. And he's, he's hurting. I know you feel sorry for him. Why were the Lord so astonished? Well, whatever happens to him, you know, if they're conquered, whatever happens to this king is going to happen to the royalty and the people in charge. They're going down uh, on the same ship, if you will. So here's some things to think about. You know, the term handwriting on the wall is a popular expression. We use it to express the hope that things, once a mystery, you know, we have this mystery of this, uh, this virus that's going around. Once a mystery are starting to come into view. And we're kind of seeing things start to come into view, you know, as course of time. Uh, almost as a sign to where things are headed. But we don't want to put too much effort into what the media tells us and what all the world is trying to tell us or what our own thoughts are. We always want to stay in the Word of God. But in our passage, the handwriting is announcing what? It's, a, it's going to announce impending judgment on this young man. In the case of Belshazzar, he knows, or excuse me, th this is an example for us to look at. Okay, When a person um, reacts to a crisis, especially a crisis that's been created by their own doing, think about it, think about the things we've done, you know, the mess we've made in our lives in the past, uh, how we react to that. And sometimes the first thing it produces in us is guilt. And that's a good thing. That's a healthy thing. And he made a fateful decision to pull out the sacred cups taken from God's temple 
And God was going to confront him for it. So what was God using? He was using his conscience to convict him. You see, the conscience is something that God has given us that can be used to convict us to change, to change our ways. And if nothing else, it's going to make us feel guilty. When we make decisions, when we create problems, when we, we find ourselves in a crisis created by our own doing. And we see this at work in our lives, and we see it in the work of the lives of others. And the Bible explains the reason for that. And the reason is because God has written his law, the Ten Commandments, like you see out there on the, on the hallway. He's written his law, the moral law, in the hearts of men and women. That's what he's done. How do we know that? Romans 2, 12 through 16. It says, For as many as have sinned without the law, in other words, they weren't brought up in the Jewish culture, they weren't part of the Jewish race, if you will, so they're Gentiles. It says, They will also perish without the law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. So at the end of the day, everyone's going to be judged by God's moral law. Verse 13, For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature, do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law unto themselves. There's that conscience when you're confronted with something that you know you're, you're, you're done wrong, you're, you're, your heart, you know, your conscience is working on you. Verse 15 in Romans, it says, Who shall show the work of the law written in their hearts? In other words, he placed it there. Their conscience also bearing witness. Okay, So between the, the knowledge of the law and your conscience bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. And then in verse 16, in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. So, you know, you, you see this again. What, what kind of principles can you see? Well, here you see this rich young man, this prince, this powerful uh, co-regent of this city, this great city in an ancient culture, who's obviously made a terrible mess of things. And, but you can see the guilt is starting to come and work on his heart. And so we should appreciate the fact that God can reach us. And sometimes he will use us to be the messenger to speak into the life of a person, to remind them of where they're at, you know, to, to remind them of their need to repent. And the conscience uh, that the person has works and does the work by the power of the Holy Spirit to help change people's lives. Queen Mother, verse, five, verse 10, the Queen Mother speaks... It says here, the queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came to the banquet hall. Malka, the wife of a king, is a, is a word Malka, or mother of the king. Now, word had spread very quickly throughout the palace about this embarrassing situation that was going on in the banquet hall, okay? And, of course, now the, the queen's got to come down and make an, a public appearance. Uh, some historians identify her as uh, Queen uh, Nidacris. In any event, the queen spoke, which is very rare. It's the only time you'll see that in this, this particular book where the queen speaks. It says, Oh, king, live forever when she came in. Now, this is, again, the formal sign of respect. If you wanted to be on somebody's good side from the outset, you would wish them publicly that they would have a long life. 
And so she said, O king, live forever. And then she said, Do not let your words or your thoughts trouble you, excuse me, nor let your countenance change. In other words, son, you need to start acting like a king. Don't be alarmed and don't look so pale. You know, you need to clean yourself up because people are getting nervous. Look at what your people have done to you. Look look at your lords. Everybody's astonished. Like, what's going on here? And then she reminds him. She says in verse 11, there is a man in your kingdom whom the spirit of the holy God. So the the queen is starting to be, trying to be optimistic. Uh, One writer put it this way. She, the queen, was optimistic about the whole situation. And she was, she was certain, okay, that once the handwriting was accurately interpreted, everything would be fine. Now, she knew very well, just like everybody else in the palace knew, that the city was surrounded by the enemy. Uh, the American humorist Kim Hubbard once defined an optimist as, quote, a person who believes that what's going to happen will be postponed. That's an optimist. And then she says, reminds her, there's a man in your kingdom. And in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and soothsayers. And it makes you wonder why this young man didn't realize this and try to save himself a lot of grief. Why did he call the guys that he knew that had a bad track record to come and try to uh, interpret this writing? When he had somebody here here from God who could have done it for him. And verse 12 goes on, and it describes Daniel's character. Daniel's character. Daniel, a follower of God, a, a child of God. That's you and I, a child of God. Look at his character. Excellent spirit, knowledge, understanding, interpreting dreams. Well, maybe we don't have that gift, but solving riddles and explaining enigmas. Very uniquely gifted by God. But his, his character. We're going to learn, talk a little bit about more of that in a, in a minute. Something very important for all of us. Now, you know when we get to next week in our, when we're in our message of verse 22, that actually Daniel's going to confront Belshazzar about this. He's going to say in verse 22, he goes, But you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all of this. You knew that I was here. You knew that I could have come and given you this word, but you didn't humble your heart. And so the queen goes on. She said, to whom the king named Belshazzar uh, gave Daniel his name. Okay, When they gave them their Babylonian names, uh, his was Belshazzar, which means Bel, protect the prince. So she's trying to use his Babylonian name to this young prince whose knees are shaking and he's all, all distraught to even say, even in his Babylonian given name, it means that he's here to protect you. Bell, protect the, the, the prince, if you will. Now, it's been pointed out that by this time, Daniel is, is very old. Daniel is perhaps, um, you know, he's, he's probably in his mid-80s because the captivity, the 70 years of exile that the Jews had to uh, and, uh, go through is almost over. The time has almost run out that they will be eventually released back into the land. And Daniel, when he was taken captive, he was probably in his mid-teens. So at the end of the 70-year exile, that would put him in his mid-80s. And many people believe that he was probably at this point in semi-retirement. So next week, we're going to see, 
as Daniel comes out of retirement, so to speak. Let's assume that that's what is the case. And he's going to describe God's judgment on Babylon and the fall of the golden kingdom. He's going to, he's going to describe how, you know, what's about to happen, and sure enough, it does happen. Where Remember, the kingdoms of this world, are, are, they have a time limit. They will expire. And this was the first of the great kingdoms that we had in the prophecy earlier from Daniel. The next kingdom would be the, you know, the breast of silver. This was the Medo-Persian army. But notice something very important uh, as we get ready to close today about Daniel's attributes. You know, we talked about the fact that he had the ability to interpret dreams and all that. But also he brought, verse 11, light and understanding and wisdom. Light and understanding and wisdom. Now I want you to think of those who you may have seen in your life, uh, people that you know that have walked closely with God and were able to speak into your life or per perhaps the life of others. And one of the reasons that they were able to do that is because they brought light to the situation. They brought understanding and they brought wisdom. These are important attributes that we should all seek to have. And it only comes over the course of time as we walk with the Lord, as we take, as I said earlier, as we take responsibility for our spiritual growth. And it's also another reason why we need to be committed to fellowshipping with one another. Because you have people at different levels in their walk with Christ. And there are people here in this church or wherever you choose to, to fellowship that have light and understanding and they have wisdom and they want, to, they want to share it with you. They want to speak into your life. But we're never going to get there if we're just living our own little world. And so I would like to encourage you to do that. And keep in mind James's verse. James, brother James's, James's verse. Couldn't help it. Sorry, James. It says in James 1.5, you see it there. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, ask of God, who gives all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. So the Lord will give us wisdom if we ask him. Amen? Amen. All right, the worship team will come up and let's, uh, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for our time today, Lord. Thank you for giving us a glimpse of uh, what's real history, Lord, and, and how you worked. How your story, his story, works all the way through all the ages and will continue to work through all of eternity. And Lord, I thank you that we will share, those of us who know you as Lord and Savior, we will share in that eternal life with you, that we will be a part of your story. And so, Father, we just ask that you simply go before us now as we conclude our service, Lord. We thank you for your loving kindness. We thank you for your patience, Lord. We thank you for the fact that, you know, whatever problems we may be going through, um, there are ways to approach them. There are ways to uh, seek help. And then there are ways that are not wise. And so, Lord, help us to walk in wisdom. Help us to walk in truth. Help us to walk in the light of understanding that comes from you not only for our own good, but for the good of others, for our families and our households. We love you, Lord, and we just, you know, we just are so blessed for all that you give us, Lord. And our words will never express it fully or completely. But I would just ask, Lord God, that you would just fill us all, that we would all seek to be filled with your Holy Spirit, even afresh and anew today. Lord, that we would continue to walk in your goodness. 
in your love, walk with humility, walk with truth. Guide our steps, we ask, Lord. And we pray this all in Jesus' precious name and all God's people said, amen. Well, let's stand and read our closing verses for today, Romans 16, 25 through 27. We'll read it aloud together. It says, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations, according to the commandment of the everlasting God, for obedience to the faith, to God alone wise, be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. Amen. Thank you for joining us today for Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us next week as we continue through the Bible, book by book, verse by verse, line by line.